Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast for pharmacists by pharmacists, where we discuss current events, relevant topics and emerging issues. I'm your host, Carly McMoore, and together with the AJP, I'm bringing you the opinions and expertise of different pharmacists to discuss their views and insights on topics relevant to pharmacists. Please like and rate each episode and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. So I'm facing, I'm the National President of the Pharmaceutical Society of Australia. So thank you, Fang. I thought I'd ask you today about the way forward for pharmacists for our profession and drawing upon any international evidence that exists. Thank you, Carlin. That's actually a really good question because I know in the past four months and our entire profession in Australia, we've been sucked into the vortex of the 60-day dispensing policy. And I know for many of us, we've spent a lot of our energy focusing on the actual 60-day dispensing policy, fighting as hard as we can to try and address this policy and trying to avoid any negative consequences that might come out of that policy. But at the moment, I think we we all need to take a step back. We know the first tranche of the 60-day dispensing um, policy has happened, or 60-day prescription, I should say, uh, on and that happened. The first tranche happened on the 1st of September, and. Why I think it's um, why it's so critical and where would the negative impact be and why we need to focus on the way forward is because for a long time, community pharmacists in Australia have been providing a whole range of services that the local communities rely upon. But the only reason why community pharmacists have been able to provide those services is because we do have remuneration from some other areas, including from dispensing. And the issue at the moment is that when succeeded dispensing comes in, and we know the first tranche has started, no doubt it's actually having a negative impact on the bottom line in terms of dispensing remuneration. What If that affects the viability of the community pharmacy and without adequate meaningful reinvestment to come back and compensate for that, then something has to go. And what what has to go is potentially the, t- the services that pharmacists provide. And if you ask me, I think pharmacists needs to accept that moving forward, there will be a shift and a priority, a shift in the priority and the focus of our work from a focus mainly on dispensing to the provision of cognitive professional services in the community. And the shift is fine because we know pharmacists are innovators. We know pharmacists are um, resilient. We know pharmacists will adapt and we know we can do it, but we can't do it unless there is meaningful reinvestment to support pharmacists to do those professional services. Provided there are meaningful reinvestment to come in and support pharmacists to do these professional services to counteract any negative impact, financial impact that 60 prescription is going to pose on the pharmacy, then the pharmacy can continue to stay viable and pharmacists can continue to have a bright, um, you know, and, and upward trajectory in their career. So that is why it is so important. We all play a role in Australia in pharmacy. And that is why we strongly believe that our key role here at PSA is to spend and really focus our energy and resources on ensuring that we can get meaningful reinvestment. We can fight for that meaningful reinvestment to come back to community pharmacy. And and I know I've used the word meaningful reinvestment a lot. And why I stress about meaningful reinvestment is the reinvestment 
whether it's the quantum of funding um, or whether it's the source of funding it need, or how or what services the funding is allocated to. It needs to be meaningful in that it has to be new money. It can't be simply a shift of from, you know, from patient payment to federal government payment. And it, it has to be absolutely new money coming in to address the shortfall as a result of the 60-day dispensing or 60-day prescription policy. So that's why I, I emphasize on the word meaningful when it comes to reinvestment. And if we agree with that concept, we agree and accept that there will be a paradigm shift in the way we practice pharmacy, in particular community pharmacy in Australia, from dispensing, from the mechanical component of dispensing, understanding and acknowledging that dispensing is a clinical activity. There is the clinical component as well that pharmacists must continue to do, which is to ensure that the prescription that you dispense is safe and appropriate and effective for the patient. But understanding that the mechanical component is not going to be remunerated as, as such, if there was going to be a shift from focusing mainly on dispensing to professional services, the next question then becomes, what are those professional services? What are those services that pharmacists in Australia can continue to, to contribute? And I think that question then comes back to what does the health system need? Right. So, so meaningful reinvestment, um, you have mentioned it several times, and I guess it's um, looking at a new way of doing things. But I guess what would some of the ideas you, what are some of the ideas of meaningful reinvestment that might? Yes, exactly. That's a really good question. So, so if we if we agree that there is a concept moving forward, then exactly what are some of those things? What can meaningful reinvestment look like? What kind of services? What do we think pharmacists can do and or should do? So it comes back to what our health system and what our patients need. So I would go back to the three things that I've previously socialized about what exactly are the problems we have in Australian health system, right? The first one is we know we have an aging population. And an aging population will come with an increase in healthcare demand. Secondly, we know that medicine use is on the rise. And we know that wherever medicines are used, there is a risk for medication misadventure. So we need pharmacist intervention to prevent those misadventure and hospitalization. We also know that the third point is we have a GP excess crisis here in Australia. Um, the average wait time to get into a GP has increased twice, sometimes tripling, and in some rural and remote areas, the wait times can go up to six six to eight weeks. And for that reason, we know that pharmacists should and can contribute, can tri contribute to improving um, access to primary care, which is why I think considering those healthcare system needs and consumer demands or patient demands, there are two elements that our pharmacists can contribute. In particular, one area is access to primary care, and the second element is around promoting quality use of medicines and medicine safety. So what are some of the potential things that I think pharmacists can do? Now, we know for a very long time, since before COVID, since forever, right, pharmacists have continuously been providing primary care services, um, such as management of common ailments in community pharmacy. So 
What I mean, what do I mean by that is, you know, for example, if uh, if a person who lives in Australia has a cold and flu symptom, or they have stomach pain, or they have common minor skin conditions, they have a rash. The first thing they would do is they would go in and see a pharmacist, and the pharmacist would assess the condition. The pharmacist will try and attempt to manage the condition using over-the-counter treatments. But if the pharmacist feel that the condition would warrant um, further care by a prescriber by a doctor because they need either further medical assessment or they need to be on a prescription medicine, then in those cases, the pharmacist can actually facilitate timely referral, can triage and facilitate referral. Now, this I know is something that we have been doing in Australia for decades, more so in the last 10 years. But as a country, we haven't, as a nation, we haven't really done this in a structured and in a remunerated manner. Until recently, with the pilots, so with the scope of practice pilot programs that are popping up in some states, started with Queensland, then New South Wales, and then um, now in Western Australia. But I do want to remind you know your the your listeners here that actually the management of minor ailments by community pharmacy was actually done already for a long time in a more structured manner in the UK. Um, and more recently, there was the announcement in the UK um, called the new Pharmacy First Initiative or the pharm Pharmacy First Model. But basically what that is, is that pharmacist, community pharmacists in Australia under this Pharmacy First Initiative can provide prescription medicines for seven common conditions. Now, this is different to just minor ailments. Basically, what this program, this pharmacy first program would allow is for pharmacists to provide prescription medicines without patients needing to see their GP or another doctor beforehand for seven common conditions, including sinusitis, sore throat, earaches, infected insect bites, impetigo, shingles, and uncomplicated urinary tract infections in women. And many of these would involve the use of antibiotics. And if you ask me, the key here is I think there is no reason from an equitable perspective it is well within the scope of practice of pharmacists. We have the skill sets, but also from an equity perspective for consumers, pharmacists should have PBS prescribing rights, if you ask me. Because if, if I'm a patient from the patient's perspective, seeing a doctor versus seeing a pharmacist, if I can get to my pharmacist earlier and quicker for timely care, and my pharmacist has said that I need an antibiotic for these common conditions or any other prescription medicines, then it's only fair to me as a consumer that it also gets covered under the PBS. So I think, you know, I know it's not happening in Australia yet, but this is something that I think um, it's well within our scope of practice. It's well within what I think is part of my vision for pharmacy overall moving forward. So that's a really good example of how I believe pharmacists can contribute towards improving access to primary care. Um, but I also think that, you know, similarly, if I use another example, another international example, because you asked about international example, there is another program, is an existing program in the UK called the Community Pharmacy Blood Pressure Check Service. So that actually started back in October 2021. And the main objective, again, is to enable community pharmacists to do more to check someone's blood pressure. Once again, in Australia, I know we've done that for a long time. We have absolutely done that for a long time, but we've done that, you know, out of the good hearts uh, of, of pharmacists. Pharmacists don't often charge for the service, but now with 
the policy changes, like 60 day, the introduction of 60-day prescription, pharmacists will no longer be able to continue to provide these services, these essential services for free. So I think pharmacists needs to be supported um, and remunerated and and really empowered to deliver these services. So that that is, again, I think another example of how pharmacists can contribute towards um, improving access to care. Now, of course, when it comes to medication safety, we know in Australia for a long time, pharmacists, and I'm talking now not just community pharmacists, but our um, credential consultant pharmacists undertaking HMRs and RMMRs, we know that pharmacists, whether it's medication review in pharmacy, in patients' home or in residential aged care facilities, pharmacists providing complex medication management review can go a long way to improve quality use of medicines and medicine safety. And these can extend to even transitions of care because we also know in Australia, because I kept talking about what problems do we have in Australia that we need to fix, transitions of care is another area. There is no reason why the health system should not, you know, support pharmacists more to be able to do more when it comes to transitions of care. Pharmacists can absolutely help with um, medication reconciliation. Um, I'm talking about not just in the hospital, but also in the community at the primary care level and help to um, improve judicious use of medicines to improve medicine safety. And um, I, I talked about international evidence, and I and I keep referring back to the UK. It's not just in the UK as well. I mean, it's also in Canada, uh, in New Zealand, and uh, in 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 these countries in terms of access to care and enabling pharmacists to do more. There is a lot of experience, international experiences that we can draw upon that I think we should look at. So. Talking about scope of practice, which is um, you've been alluding to, um, there's been questions or asking for a review for the scope of practice. Can I ask you what um, the PSA's stance is and what your views are on scope of practice review? Yes, absolutely. So um, we a few weeks ago, we put out a media release when um, the government first announced uh, Professor Mark Cormack to chair the scope of practice review. So the scope of practice review uh, is, is now renamed as the Unleashing um, Health Professions Full Potential review. Um, and the main aim of that is to enable all health professionals to practice to their top of scope and their full potential to better serve the health system. Now, as I understand, um, this review is not focusing on just pharmacy. It's going to focus on a whole range of health professionals, um, but pharmacy and nursing would be the first cap off the rank um, in terms of uh, more from a priority perspective and, and, and considering the changes in the policy landscape at the moment. So um, at PSA, we've met with the chair of this uh, review, um, Professor Cormack, um, a couple of weeks ago to better understand what uh, he would like to achieve, um, you know, under his leadership, him and his team, but also the timeline of delivery. And uh, he, you know, members of the profession might also uh, might also be aware that uh, it was on earlier this week that the review has formally opened for consultation. So, of course, at PSE, we take this very seriously. Now, we understand that um, this is a review and that at this stage, there is no confirmation about how any review of this, any recommendation from this review 
may or may not be implemented. But every time when you have a review, it's better for us to be in it than not be in it because there is nothing we we cannot sit there and not do anything and let other health professions um, or other people, other stakeholders who don't fully understand our scope of practice and what our full potential could be to decide about what our full scope is. And that's the reason why we we absolutely need to be um, putting a lot of effort, and we are putting a lot of effort um, in this. And I do also highly encourage that members of the profession reach out to the PSA to provide their, their advice as well. So we'll be calling out um, for uh, advice as well uh, from members of the profession. But if I may also add, the way how we're viewing this scope of practice review is that it is not just about what is the full scope for all health professional. I think the review will ultimately reveal a number of barriers and challenges in our health system that is actually stopping health professions health professionals from practicing to their top of scope. I actually feel quietly confident that if you ask any health professional, they would know what their full potential is. But why are they not practicing to that full scope? Is it because there's no remuneration or is it that there are barriers and challenges? And I suspect that when this review is undertaken, it may reveal that some of these barriers could be it could be many things, but one of the major barriers could be regulatory barriers. And I'm, I'm always a big believer as well that regulation should be there to serve the health system and not the other way around. Because regulations are there to provide structure and make sure that the things that we do are correct and that they are you know, of a particular standard and that we're following the rules. Um, but if there was a particular regulation governing what pharmacists can and can't do, it must be. It must meet contemporary needs as well, um, rather than um, being another set of red tapes stopping health professionals from practicing to their top of scope to better serve the health system at their patient and their patients. So what I'm really hoping to see out of this scope of practice review is that it will not only identify and map the scope and the roles that all health professionals can play in the health system, it should also identify what are the barriers and challenges um, in the health system that's stopping pharmacists and other health professionals from practicing at the top of scope. Because once there is an acknowledgement and a formal assessment of what these barriers and challenges are, until then, we can't go and address those barriers and challenges because once that's been identified, I think the next step would be then how can we remove these barriers? Because you will see that once these barriers are removed, um, if there was um, any expectation for pharmacists to step up and do new things, once again, I strongly believe in our profession. We, our profession have such great innovators. Pharmacists in general, it's in our DNA that we are innovators. We adapt very quickly. Just look at what happened during COVID. We will step up, we will adapt, and we will um, we will continue to deliver. But we, in, in order for us to practice to our top of scope, we need those barriers to be removed. So that's that. That really is what I'm hoping um, that the review would identify. So you know, what are the areas of gaps in our health system, and uh, what is holding us back as a profession, and how can we address those? Um, I, I think also the review would. What I'm hoping to, to that the review would deliver as well is to help identify if there was any um, disproportionate power with um, between the different professions, because 
I never believe in hierarchy. I always feel that every health professional is important when it comes to providing care to patients. So patients should always be at the center of our attention. Healthcare should be patient-centered and patient-directed. And all health professionals have equal um, significance and equal importance, if you like, around the patient to help support that one patient. So what I'm hoping to do as well is, or what I'm hoping to see, I should say, the scope of practice review, uh, the outcome is uh, an outcome that would help facilitate true interprofessional collaboration. I don't think any health professional, including professional pick bodies, I don't think anyone should spend any time or waste any time from attacking each other. Ultimately, we're here to deliver for patients and for health systems. So I really am hoping that the scope of practice review will put a stamp on things, really map out, you know, what each of us can do to to our top of scope and remove any unnecessary turf walls and remove any barriers um, including regulatory barriers to really enable all of us, um, including pharmacists, of course, to practice to our top of scope. And of course, I can't stress enough that even if something is within our scope, we cannot continue to do more for less. And I've repeatedly said that many times. We we just simply cannot, and it's not feasible for us to continue to do more for less. So once the scope of practice review has identified that something is within our scope, we can do more, barriers can be removed. We still need to be fully supported and remunerated to do this work. Otherwise, it is not going to be sustainable. And if it's not sustainable, ultimately, it would lead to programs and services stopping or ceasing, and ultimately, patients would suffer uh, as a consequence. So I know that PSA is a big uh, member of the eight CPA discussions, and I know that you can't discuss much, but I guess I'd ask, um, what can you share about uh, PSA's position and um, yeah, so pharmacists can get some of idea because we're not going to know until June next year about the outcome of the HCPA. Yeah, so um, so as you've mentioned there, Carleen, um, so I just want to make it very clear. So PSA, we have signed uh, a, a non-disclosure agreement with the department and um, uh, we absolutely need to um, abide by that. And, and we will not be able to share any details of the discussions or negotiations uh, specifically around HCPA. Um, so I, I'm, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I would respect that NDA as well. So I won't be able to disclose the details. And in one of my members' um, message, I've, I've outlined the reasons for that. But I, I do, what I can share is um, that we are maintaining that ongoing conversation and the discussion has already started um, with the department and with the minister's office. And what I can say is that I really want to assure members of our profession that PSA is absolutely doing everything we can when it comes to advocating for pharmacists to uh, have a role at the things that A, we are already doing, but we need to be better remunerated for it. And B, um, some of the new initiatives that we could do, and I'll share earlier on around um, just in general, not CPA specific, but just in general as a vision, what do we think what pharmacists can do and can contribute? So there is all these um, um, activities that 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 we could look at. So again, not going into any any detail, I think it's it's safe to say that I really strongly genuinely believe that pharmacists, we are already doing so much. We can do more. Absolutely, we can do more, but we can't do more for less. And um, we 
we need we just need to make sure that any form of remuneration is is carefully considered and we are absolutely prioritizing this uh, at the moment and we do have um dr shane jackson uh, as our hcpa um uh, lead negotiator from the PSA's perspective, uh, fully supported by an HCPA working group. Um, and and obviously, um, Steve, our CEO, and myself are fully involved in the whole process as well. Thank you. So what can pharmacists do, I guess, to prepare for what, what the outcomes might be? Yes, there's so much I think pharmacists can do. I mean, first of all, I think absolutely pharmacists, we, we ourselves as practitioners, we must value our own worth. And I always, I've said this um, even with my students since forever. We need to fully understand that our role, we, that we play a key role in the health system. And we are absolutely need to first, I mean, within ourselves, we need to acknowledge and recognize that. And second is that, is to control the things that we can control. So think forward, forward looking in terms of where is the trend? So we know we have an aging population. What services can you provide to actually, you know, better serve the, the an aging population? What can you do to build a better interprofessional collaboration with your local GP? If you haven't gone and spoke to your local GPs next door, go and talk to them, sit down with them, really build that connection and that rapport with them. So you have a respectful relationship and you can also spend some time if it works within that relationship dynamic to really outline, you know, from your perspective, from the pharmacist's perspective, what does any policy mean to you? How does this policy, how would any policy affect the service that you provide as a pharmacist? And how can you work better? And how can you both, the doctors and the pharmacists, work better together um, for your local patients, for example? But also, thirdly, I think pharmacists can look inwards and really um, internalize the concept and I would challenge the listeners to think about this whether you believe or not that it is an imminent move that there will be a shift there will be a, a further paradigm shift of the role of pharmacists the core role of pharmacists from dispensing to the provision of cognitive professional services if you if you agree that that is the direction because that is driven by health system needs that's driven by the aging population then have you done everything you can to prepare your pharmacy, your workplace, and your team to better deliver on that. So, for example, do you have a professional private consultation area? You might have a consultation area, but is it um, is it prepared in in a manner that really is conducive for the delivery of professional services? Have you got enough space to do this? Do you need to reconfigure? internally within your pharmacy to improve workflow, to be able to provide cognitive professional services, to be able to pick up um, patients that uh, may be eligible for services. How can you do internal training for your staff, for example, um, whether it's staff training, um, and it's not just for your pharmacist, but also for pharmacy students and for interns or even for pharmacy assistants and pharmacy technicians in your in your um, you know in, in the pharmacy how can you um, work on those things to better prepare uh, your pharmacy and your area to better deliver these services um, and also what can you do to build an even better connection and rapport with the local community that you serve how can you make the local community better understand 
the services that you provide? How can you make sure that they have a better experience when they come in? How can you make sure that you can improve the stickiness of your consumers to your pharmacy so they will come back to you when they have a healthcare need or when they need vaccinations or when they need um, advice for um, minor ailments or when they need, you know, the prescriptions field, for example. Um, so there are all these things that I think individual pharmacists can do in preparation. But of course, there are other things that pick bodies and organisations um, can do, which I believe organisations organizations are doing at the moment, which is to um, undertake advocacy work at a higher level, um, whether it's with the department or with the minister's office or with um, other stakeholder groups. And also, we fully understand. I, I also early on, you you asked me about the HCPA. I do want to acknowledge that um, the key role and the core role that the Pharmacy Guild of Australia plays um, in terms of the CPA. And from the PSA's perspective, PSA fully respects that. And it is the intention of the PSA, where possible, to be collaborative. So in, it, it's absolutely um, the mindset is collaboration rather than competition. So for the benefit of the profession, um, because that is that is absolutely our belief. So I do want to make sure that you know I um, that that it's very clear that we do acknowledge the role of the Pharmacy Guild of Australia when it comes to HCPA negotiations. Brilliant. That is most of my questions, but I would ask if there was anything else that you wanted to share with the audience or anything I didn't ask you. I, th I think the other thing is is around, um, and this is something that I, I've asked myself repeatedly when I've, you know, at night, for example, when I reflect on how the day has gone by, how, you know, some of the activities have gone. I I really am feeling because in the last I started doing advocacy work um, through the PSA when I was the WA state president six years ago and, and now doing um, national advocacy for the last two years. Something that I've personally struggled with and I think our profession struggle with is the evidence. Because every time when we advocate for something, the first thing that a policymaker or a funder would ask, and this is any funder, whether it's, and this could be, you know, a research fund, for example, or a grant, or, or any policymakers, right? The first thing people would ask is, where is the evidence of impact? Where is the evidence that this service is worth the investment? Where is the evidence that this service is improving patients' health outcomes? Where is the evidence that this service is feasible and is appropriate to be conducted and delivered by pharmacists? We can't answer these questions, the, all of these questions, unless we have a robust evaluation process in place. And a robust, what, an, what a robust evaluation will provide us is a, the evidence that if something is working, that gives us a solid evidence to um, support ongoing funding of those services and the work that pharmacists are doing. And B, if the evidence are telling us otherwise, then we can sit and reflect and go, what can we, what can we improve? Um, what can we refine? Because if you ask pharmacists out there, I'm quietly confident that no pharmacist would tell you that they, they still want to continue to provide a service, knowing that that service has no impact. I think pharmacists are great people. Pharmacists are people with such good hearts that pharmacists just want to do good work. So if we know through evaluation that something doesn't have 
um, it's not as impactful as we thought, then how can we improve that? If we refine that, how can we modify and we can do better next time and be funded, you know, to, to support to do um, other work that actually that has the impact. So it comes back to, I think, I would like to take this opportunity to encourage members of the profession to think about the importance of um, evaluation and evidence, because there is nothing stronger than solid evidence to support the advocacy work of whether it's professional organisations or grassroots levels advocacy. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any thoughts, comments or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP website forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please follow us on Twitter at AJP Podcast and send us a message.